I was just thinking with the, uh, the change of these requirements, how happy the Tic Tac company must be. For a while, everyone's wearing masks and standing six feet away, so brushing your teeth's enough, right? But now it no longer is, and we have a chance to get close. And in a sense, that's what Hebrews is all about, a chance to get close to the one who is superior above everything. I think the most important mission in life is determining what is most important. We have to settle in our own heart and mind what we will navigate our life by, what will be absolute, and what will be the determining factor in all other decisions. And the book of Hebrews gives us that. It's all about that. The superiority of Jesus Christ. In our little logo, we talk about Christ greater than everything. And as we began to read this book, we see that that's exactly what the author had in mind. You have to remember that in the book of Hebrews, the Old Testament is quoted in every chapter, usually from the Greek translation called the Septuagint, which takes the Hebrew and puts it into a modern language, a more uh, usable language, at least in that day, more broadly used in that day than the Hebrew was itself. No more so is this seen than in the first two chapters where you have, especially in chapter one, quote after quote after quote from the Old Testament. The author reveals that he is a master of understanding and using the Old Testament. And secondly, and perhaps most importantly, he reveals to us his conviction that the Old Testament is all about Jesus. Now that's a good position to hold because that's what Jesus said. In Luke chapter 24, remember the individuals on the road to Emmaus after the resurrection who were going to give up following Christ in the ministry and Jesus came alongside them and they didn't know who he was. And he said, it's, it's sad that you're so dull to really understand and see what the scriptures are talking about. You're discouraged because of the death of Christ but they proclaimed the life of Christ and the resurrection and the Messiah being seated at the right hand of the Father. And so beginning with Moses and the prophets, and later on in that chapter he includes the Psalms, which becomes the threefold division of the Old Testament. The law, the prophets, the poetry books, the wisdom books, all of these speak of Jesus Christ. So while there is original intent, the historicity of the text itself, dealing with kings and people, there are often messages coming to us, foreshadowing the greater king and the Lord Jesus himself. The Bible, of course the New Testament, but also the Old Testament, is manifestly Christocentric always bringing us back to the Savior. And that's why the study of Hebrews, I think, is so exciting. We also have to remember the context, remember the story that we find ourselves in. The author, unknown, but with a mastery of the Old Testament, 
and a love for Jesus, is writing to Jewish people, somewhat unknown. (laughs) We think they're of Italian descent because of the last chapter, probably from Rome, now living in Judea. And Paul is writing to them because these Jewish believers who've given their heart and soul to Christ and suffered much for the Savior are now thinking of turning back. As some of us have struggled with at one point or another in our lives, right? Filled with doubts, we begin to wonder, is this the real deal? And they were thinking of apostasy. That is, to fall away, to drift away, to leave the new covenant teachings of faith in Christ. And so he's writing to show them that this is a very bad decision when you understand who Jesus is. I'm of the conviction that when people really understand who Jesus is, when they see him in his glory and his love, that they believe in him. But most people see him through veiled eyes and cannot understand the true Christ. We notice from the early part of Hebrews chapter 1 that Jesus is better than the prophets. They spoke in various ways at many times. But their message, although accurate, was not totally complete nor final. But when the Son spoke, he spoke with finality. He brings completion to the revelation of God. And the apostles take up the message of Christ and fill it out for us in what we call our New Testament. So to continue his argument that Jesus is superior, he says Jesus is better than the prophets. Now he's saying Jesus is better than the angels. Look at verse 4. And we'll try to have most of these verses on the screen for you. I'm using the NIV Uh, The older one, translated in 1984, if anyone is concerned. So it says that Jesus became as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is superior to theirs. So here's the message of the book of Hebrews. Jesus is superior. That word superior is used for a lot of things. I think I once bought tires from Superior Tire. Had my carpets cleaned by Superior Carpet Cleaning. It's like the word great or awesome, used so frequently that it no longer is great nor awesome. But when we talk about Jesus being superior to everything, that's exactly what the scriptures tell us. And that is truth. I'm giving you the whole point of my message before I even preach, which I don't like to do. I suppose we could close up the book and leave. But no, you know I have to spend another 30 minutes or so. And today's going to be a little bit different because there's there's some explaining to do. The author takes seven quotations from the Old Testament, again from the Greek translation called the Septuagint, and strings them together in a chain to prove his argument that Jesus indeed holds the position of supremacy. But we want to walk our our way through them and explain as best we can 
before we get to the exhorting part. Preaching should involve explanation and exhortation. And uh, sometimes they're mixed together, but we've got some explaining to do. So I want you to notice that Jesus is superior because the Father has bestowed on him an exclusive name. This is verse 4. He's inherited a name. And in Philippians, he's given a name that is above every other name, right? It is indeed superior. But what is that name? Verse 5. Now there's going to be a comparison between Jesus and the angels through the rest of the chapter. For, which, for to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I have become your father? Rhetorical question with an obvious answer. He never said that to the angels. You see, the danger here is that angels, especially the Old Testament, were used in some very important situations. So the, the hearers, the auditors, those who would get the message of the book of Hebrews, sometimes had a very elevated position of angels. The danger is elevating angels to the same level of Jesus. According to Galatians chapter 3 and verse 19, the law was given through angels and then entrusted to Moses, the mediator. Angels are very active in the Old Testament. Uh, they, uh, like in the book of Daniel, Gabriel is named, bringing visions and insight. They're not, they're not mystical creatures like fairies or gnomes. They're not an impersonal power like the force be with you. Angels are, are individuals. And these individuals, by the way, this is one of the best texts to teach you angelology in any portion of the Word of God. If you have false views of angels or any understanding of angels, match them by what our writer is going to tell us under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Angels celebrated the birth of Christ. They ministered to Jesus when he was being tempted in the wilderness. They were there to strengthen him when he was praying in the garden. And throughout his ministry, angels are there. And we're going to see something else very interesting about angels in a little bit. They are beings with superior power, or surpassing power, I should say, and unbelievable intelligence. They make up the entourage of God in heaven, if you read the book of the Revelation. And when he comes again, they will be with him. So the ancients began to believe, you know, God is so lofty and he's so way up there. We need a mediator. We need a help. And angels are those mediators. They gave us the law. They must be there to help. And then the danger is we make too much of angels. And I think we've done that today. We seem to, to go to extremes, don't we? Like a pendulum on a clock, rarely in the center, often this way, swinging this way, swinging that way. Some of you don't even believe in angels, don't even recognize that they're there to help, as we will see, and then others of you might think angels are kind of close to Jesus. Well, this chapter will destroy that view. The name the Father has given the Son, the name that he has inherited, is indeed the Son. It's been used a couple times, but now there's a quotation from Psalm 2. 
This quotation from Psalm 2 historically spoke of a king of Israel. It's a royal psalm. But in Psalm 2, it also mentions the anointed of God. So as in many Old Testament prophecies, you have a historical present. It's referring to a king of that day. But then the prophecy looks ahead to the greater king, the Messiah, who is the anointed one in coming. And under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the writer takes this Old Testament verse and applies it to Jesus. The Father says to the Son, or says to Jesus, You are my son. Now, when did Jesus become the son? Always has been, right? But it's interesting that the way this is used, the Apostle Paul uses it in Acts 13 to talk about the resurrection. He quotes Psalm 2 as well. Paul said, we tell you the good news, what God has promised our fathers. He has fulfilled for us, their children, by raising Jesus up from the dead, as he said in Psalm 2, today, you have become my son. Or I am publicly declaring that you are my son. He's always been the son, but the resurrection publicly declares it. That's exactly what Romans 1 says. Jesus is declared to be the son of God with power by the resurrection of the dead. And so he has a name that is above every name. The angels in the book of Job were called sons of God, but no one had the title the son. The Son of God, that is reserved for Jesus. And then another quotation, this time from 2 Samuel chapter 7. By the way, the seven quotations in chapter 1 are all from the book of Psalms, except this one. And again, speaking of a king, most likely Solomon, a king promised in David's line, but projecting into the future, this is Jesus. I will be his father, and he will be my son Does he ever say that to the angels? Absolutely not. So the son is elevated, and that's why he's superior. Secondly, Jesus is superior because the father commands the angels to worship him. That's in verse 6. And again, when God brings his firstborn, not created, this is a designation of rank, Again, superior, above everyone else. When God brings his firstborn into the world, you say, well, when did that happen? It's interesting that expositors are divided over this issue, but they say it's inconclusive. Some say it's first advent, Christmas, and others say it's second advent, the coming of Christ, and it probably refers to both. Because when the sun came into the world the first time, what did the angels do? at Christmas, to the shepherds, worshipped him. All glory to God. But they were worshipping Christ. And when he comes back, the angels again are declaring his glory. Now this is a really interesting verse. This is, again, the Greek, Greek Septuagint is the translation, and it takes the Hebrew word malachim and exchanges it for angeloi, which is where we get the word angel. The Greek word just is translated into English. And so it actually says that worship, 
that was directed toward Jehovah, that's the context of Psalm 97, is now transferred to the firstborn, Jesus. This is scandalous <laughs> in the minds of many a Jew. There is only one God, they would say. And we're to worship that one God with all of our heart and all our soul and all our mind. And we say, yes, indeed, there is one God who manifests himself in three persons. And here's a text to prove it. In the very early verses of Hebrews 1, it says that Jesus is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his character or person or nature. And now it says the worship given to Jehovah, Yahweh, is to be given to Jesus. The angels don't get that kind of treatment. They give that kind of treatment. It couldn't be clearer said that Jesus is divine and that Jesus is God. But he doesn't stop there. Here's the third reason why Jesus is superior. The Father calls him God. Now, there is a comparison in verse 7 with verse 8. He starts with the angels first. Who are the angels? Uh, he makes his angels winds and his servants flames of fire. That's taken from Psalm 104. The Hebrew word wind and spirit is the same. And notice he creates angels. He makes them. And they're, they're like, their function is like the natural element forces of creation. Like the wind and the fire. But both are transitory, right? Wind and fire. Their function, the angels function as servants of God. They've been created by God to accomplish his will. As it says in, the, in verse 14, they are ministering spirits. That's their function. By the way, with the word wind and spirit connected, I'm not saying that every time you feel the wind, it's an angel, as some people might say. But wouldn't it be great if every time we feel the wind, we would be reminded of the angels who are accomplishing the perfect will of God, unseen, with power and effect like these natural elements. Now, compare the servants created to verse 8. But about the Son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. Let that sink in for a moment. If you go back to Psalm 45, that's a royal wedding song that has allusions to the Song of Solomon that talks about this wonderful, intimate relationship, the greatest love that can be known. And taken from that royal wedding song is this address to Jehovah. And now Jehovah addresses it to Jesus. You can't get around this. A great Greek scholar said the simple and obvious translation that uh, is, is in the text is God. 
calling Jesus God. But many critical attempts to evade this conclusion appear to be based on the premise that Jesus can't be God. That's the human premise. We, we say, how can a man be God? And this is mystifying and impossible except for the incarnation. God calling Jesus God. The angels are servants, but Jesus is God. Enthroned above everything in the world. He possesses another name than son. And it is God. The conclusion is inescapable. The Son is fully divine. So when you read John 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. You say, who is the Word? The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. There's no misunderstanding to the objective soul looking for divine truth. Verse 9, you have loved, this is still part of Psalm 45, you have loved righteousness, you've hated wickedness, therefore God, your God. Now wait a minute. He addressed him as God in verse 8, but now he, he distinguishes him from God. God, your God. Again, that makes no sense without the incarnation and the unique mystery of the Trinity. In any other context except this divine one, and we bow to the divine mystery and embrace the truth of Scripture, even though it is above reason. It's not against it, but it is above it. Can you explain to me how God can be one in three? No. And I love the statement attributed to John Wesley. If I try to understand the Trinity, I'll lose my mind. But if I deny the Trinity, I'll lose my soul. So I embrace Scripture even though I can't understand it all. And here's the perfect point. But he not only calls him God, he calls him Lord and Creator. In the longest quotation taken from the Old Testament, this time Psalm 102, he says in verse 10, In the beginning, Lord... And again, back in Psalm 102, this is clearly Jehovah, now applied to Jesus. In the beginning, Lord, you laid the foundations of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. Now, we are already told that in verse 2, right? Everything has been made by Jesus. And now he's just echoing that wonderful truth. The heavens, they will perish, but you remain. They will wear out like a garment. You will roll them up like a robe, like a garment. They will be changed, but you remain the same, and your years never end. So Jesus is superior because the Father calls him God and Lord and Creator, and because the Father declares, Jesus shall remain forever. And, and the writer of Hebrews never gets away from this wonderful truth. He says later on in chapter 7, because Jesus lives forever and has a, he has a permanent priesthood after the order of Melchizedek. Or how about this verse that you know 
probably pretty well in quote. It's in chapter 13, verse 8. Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever. Starts out in the first chapter. It's there in the end, ending chapter. It's throughout the middle. Jesus never changes. And that's why he's superior to the angels who are created and like wind and fire dissipate. And the last one, number five if you're counting, is that the Father invites Jesus to sit at his right hand. This is the ascension of Christ. We've talked about the incarnation and we've talked about uh, the resurrection and now we're talking about the ascension and we're also talking about the conclusion of all things, consummation when Christ comes back. But he's quoting Psalm 110, which by the way, is quoted more than any other psalm in the entire New Testament. To which of the angels did God ever say, and the answer is to none of them, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Now the right hand theology has already been mentioned in the early part of chapter 1. After he had made a purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the throne on high, the right hand of majesty. And it's going to be mentioned again. The fact that he has indeed been invited and taken this place. It means all authority is given unto him. It's a position of preeminence and authority. And he has it now, but he's not wielding his scepter yet. This is where the theologians come up with the already and the not yet. Have you heard that phrase? Is it confusing? Yes. But it means there's a sense, for instance, my salvation is already, but not yet fully completed, right? Because the Bible talks about being saved from the penalty of sin, have been saved from the penalty of sin, being saved from the power of sin, and one day being saved from the presence of sin. Salvation has three tenses. The already and the not yet. I'm looking at people who know Jesus Christ and you are saved, right? But not yet all completely saved. That is, you're not all completely saved. You still have a lot of growth to do. I hope you realize that. And the Bible doesn't talk about, you know, I'm saved. I can live any way I want to. A phrase that is never found in the scripture, once saved, always saved. Now, I believe that once you are saved, you are always saved. But people use that to explain their ungodly lifestyle. And you don't find that in the scriptures at all. The truly saved long to be like Christ. Imperfectly so. Because they have been saved. They are being saved. And one day they will be saved. All of that to say Jesus is king over everything and one day, he'll show it. And I can't wait for that day. Where he will rule in righteousness because he hates wickedness. Hebrews 10, 12. 
But when this priest had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. And since that time, he waits for his enemies to become his footstool. By the way, that's a picture from the book of Joshua who told his captains, when you conquer these heathen kings, make them lay on the ground and put your foot on their necks to display. You say, wow, that really sounds horrid. Well, you're not living in a culture of war. <laughs> and it's, it simply displays that Christ will conquer all. That he's king. And one day, every knee shall bow. And every neck will bow. And Jesus will be seen as Lord of all. John Calvin wisely said, Certainly if we are to believe what our eyes see, then the kingdom of Christ seems to be on the verge of ruin. Right? If we believe what our eyes see, but we walk by faith and not by sight. Calvin goes on to say, but his promise that Christ will never be dragged from his throne, but rather he will lay low all of his enemies, should banish from us all fear. I serve a risen Savior He's at the throne today. And so whatever I experience in this life, I look away to my enthroned king who's already purified all of my sins and one day will come back to rescue this world and bring in unbelievable righteousness. So verse 14 says, Are not all angels ministering spirits sent forth to serve those who will, get this, inherit salvation? There's a lot of false teaching in angelology. Some believe, people believe there's an angel for every country. I don't know that the scripture teaches that. Some believe that there's an angel for every church, and they take that from Revelation chapter 2 and chapter 3, to the angel. Wouldn't that be cool? I mean, I don't know if that's referring to a human messenger or leader. I think it is. But if it, what if it were referring to the angel? Wouldn't it be cool to get into heaven and some guy come up and say, I'm the angel of South Church. <laughs> you guys really put me through it. <laughs> <laughs> They're sent forth to minister for us. Make it real. When you feel the wind, think of those that God sends to help us. But they're not our Savior. Or as Matthew 18 infers, Little children have angels, individual angels, helping us, helping those who will inherit salvation, already saved but not completely so, and they're there to minister on our behalf. Well, that's the explanation of this wonderful passage of Scripture. What's the exhortation? Jump to chapter 2 real quick. We're not going to be able to go very far, but here is the first warning passage of Hebrews, and there are several. Therefore, we must pay the most careful attention to what we've heard because it comes from God the Son, who is superior to everything, so that we do not drift away. Say that with me. Drift away. Is that a possibility for you? You sang just a moment ago, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Did you mean it? Well, those are just the words of a song. 
No. Prone to wander. I feel it. And we battle to stay true. Be careful that you don't drift away. For since the message spoken through angels was binding, again referring to the law of Moses, and every violation and disobedience received its just punishment, how shall we escape if we ignore this great salvation that comes through God the Son? This salvation was first announced by the Lord, confirmed by those who heard him, and God testified with amazing miracles to the authenticity of its message. Don't drift away. I'm reminded of what Jesus said at the transfiguration. What a cool scene. Jesus is on the mountain with inner circle, Peter, James, and John, right? Probably Mount Hermon, the highest mountain in Israel. And suddenly Jesus begins to light up. His divinity that we've discussed today begins to shine through his humanity. And he doesn't just look like a carpenter from Nazareth. And it's whiter than your eyes can endure. It's like the brightness of the sun. Jesus on this mountain. And Peter doesn't know what to say. He says, Elijah and Moses show up. The law and the prophets and so let's build, let, let's build a little house for all three of you. Let's put you all on the same level. <laughs> and a cloud comes and says, this is my son whom I love. Listen to him. That's what this means. He's God the Son. Listen to him. And when the cloud lifted away, the Bible tells us only Jesus was seen. And that's what I pray for you and for me, that the clouds of this life and whatever we might put close to Christ will be lost in the cloud of the presence of God who says, this is the Son I love. It's time for you to listen to him. C.T. Studd said, if Jesus Christ be God and died for me, then no sacrifice I make can be too great for him. Let's pray. Father, we bow before the risen Lord, seated at the right hand and soon to return. We bow before you, O sovereign God of the universe, and to the blessed Holy Spirit God sent from the Father and the Son. We bow. And Lord, we worship and we entreat thee that you would make the Son first in our hearts, that we would listen and obey joyfully follow and enjoy the encouragement no matter what may happen around us the encouragement that the enthroned son of God Messiah the King is with us open our eyes as we study through Hebrews that we might see Christ and for those who don't know him 
Lord, say something to them. May some word prick their heart. May they hear your invitation, all you who are weary and heavy burdened, come to me and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Lord, I pray, speak to our hearts today. And with our heads bowed and our eyes closed, spend a moment right now praying and asking God to speak to your heart. Let's pray.